well, that's just dumb because that's not what history was. Like, why are we even talking about that? Because, you know, why are you even bringing up Hitler if, you know, I mean, it's just a stupid decision to do, right? But Welcome to this week's episode of Fear, Honor, and Interest, the podcast where two straight white guys who went to Yale solve America's cultural divisions by trying not to talk about America's cultural divisions. Coming from Washington, <laughs> D.C., I'm your host, Charles Bobinger, with me on the line from Istanbul, Turkey, my co-host, David Will. David, how's it going? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Uh, it's good to be talking with you. That was a good, that was a good switcheroo there. Yeah, I mean, uh, we have we did an episode uh, last Sunday that we recorded. It was kind of short because David was in a hurry. It was about the Governor Northam stuff in Virginia, and um, events overtook everything we said so quickly. I think it was before I had a chance to post it. Um, you know, allegations came out about the lieutenant governor, and then the attorney general admitted he'd, he'd done similar things as, as the governor, and um, it, it all just became such a mess that we're not really sure that it's worth sharing at this point. Um, and it, I don't, it, it's in, in any event, um, you know, we joke every episode we're two straight white guys who went to Yale. Well, there are some issues where what two straight white guys who went to Yale have to say on an issue may not actually be that helpful. Um, and uh, our, I don't know that our takes on it were so brilliantly incisive that we needed to share them after the um, main thrust of the episode became obsolete, where we kept talking about how wonderful this Justin Fairfax guy is and how he'll make a great <laughs> governor. And he's a rising star in the Democratic Party. And um, Yeah. yeah. That's a little, a little exaggerated. but It's but a little yeah, exaggerated that's... what we said, but we said similar things. It yeah. was – the point is, you know – a lot of what we say in these episodes that gets overtaken by events like the stuff we said about the MAGA hat kids um, and the Native American elder, you know, the story changed, although because what we had said, we had aimed for something a bit more universal in its application. What we had said still held up after, you know, new information. If I do out. say so myself. If I do say so myself. Um, right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that on this particular issue, we have anything valuable to say. I mean... Right. You don't really need us to say blackface is bad, and there's nothing we can actually do to force the governor yeah. out, and it's actually, awkward now, now that the Republicans regain the governorship. The, yeah, so one of the interesting things that I that I took from the episode was, uh, now that I recall it a little bit better, was simply that talking about the issue basically it's hard not to feel as though you are splitting hairs and making comparisons and sort of implying a hierarchy of values that if you say, well, if X, Y, Z, then whatever other, you know, ABC, if X, Y, Z, then ABC. Um, and as we spent about half an hour doing that, we had to, I mean, we both felt the need three separate times, as I recall, to sort of go back to the bottom line of like, and we think Ralph Northam should resign, you know? Right. Well, but, but the, um, but even more so that rather than, rather than simply, and let us draw your attention to this fact that is so important that it needs to be repeated to me, it felt like, again, um, not like don't forget this thing that is so important to the history of to the future of Rome. We must destroy Carthage. 
it was, let me not confuse you, my, my listener, and lead you to think that I am saying something other than this, right? And, that, and that's part of the problem with, and I think I've said this as well, it's part of the problem of sort of descending into the muck of discussing these types of episodes in, in too much detail because it's almost impossible, I think, to avoid that sense of, you know, the, 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 to avoid leaving the impression that you are comparing the relative vileness of blackface versus sexual assault. And, and it's just, it's a conversation you can't win because um, it's very difficult to move. I, I, at least I felt that way. Um, that, that you, uh, by, by, by saying things, by even talking about them in the same context, that it's hard to ensure that the listener is not confused into thinking that you might be doing that. And it's much better to just say, these are terrible things and let's just focus on moving forward. And, you know, how can this person who did a terrible thing redeem themselves? And we both agreed that for Ralph Northam, you know, at that stage in the process, the way to do that was to offer a resignation. He obviously felt something differently. Um, now with Justin Fairfax, um, we didn't, I mean, obviously we didn't talk about the, those allegations because we hadn't seen them yet. Um, and of course now there are two and, right. and he's also not, uh, and he's also as of now refusing to resign. Um, and he's asked for an FBI investigation. So, um, you know, so that too, I think it's like the, the question should not be, is one worse than the other? It, you know, the question should definitely be, um, what can this person do? What can we as a public demand that this person do to, redeem themselves to make, to, to make good out of this present moment that we're in. And perhaps that, that should be a resignation. If not, I mean, for, for, if the things about the accusations about Justin Fairfax are, are true, those constitute crimes, I, I believe. Yes. So that's a different story. Um, but it's also like, and I'm, I'm going to sign, I'm going to pass it on to you now with this question, you know, do we, is there any way to win or rather, is, is there any way to win in having these types of conversations when simultaneously we could be talking about things like the Green New Deal, which, you know, as important as it is to restructure our society such that episodes of racial bias and sexual aggression don't occur, I think it's perhaps utopian to, success, to suspect that that will ever actually happen because people contain this capacity for evil inside them. And so, you know, there are certain steps that we definitely should take to, um, you know, to change our society in response to the types of allegations that um, Justin Fairfax is, is handling now and uh you know the the physical the actual evidence that we've seen for ralph northam and um and the sort of admission by um attorney general herring but 
you know, something like those things is, uh, I mean, we, ha we have to anticipate that those types of uh, wrongdoings will continue. But right now we have an opportunity to talk about grand restructurings of our society in a way that may literally be necessary for our, for the survival of civilization in the next centuries. And that is perhaps a, um, a conversation that is more productive, if not, you know, more necessary than the other. I mean, I, it's not more necessary. That's what I'm trying to say. It's not, it's not that it's more necessary. It's just that it is a conversation that potentially has a more productive outcome. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's sort of the whole issue here for us talking about it, which is that, um, you know, there are things that we are better able to discuss than other things we could be discussing. And we specifically are not well suited to a lot of the discussion of what's going on in Virginia. I mean, both of we're not Virginia voters. And, um, you know, as the two straight white guys who went to Yale, what can we really add to the discussion on blackface other than to say it's bad, he should have resigned. And, and almost anything we say about it is just going to end up into the splitting hairs where it's, oh, did you mean X? It's, well, no, I didn't really mean X. And it gets very complicated. Um, an example we had discussed before the show, which I bring up largely to point out that we're not going to get into it, was this Kansas Owens remark about Hitler and nationalism, where, <laughs> you know, you talk about it and you start to realize, what's the value of discussing any of what she said? Because... Um, all of it is by, by, you know, by necessity, one side says, oh, well, she meant this. And the other side knows, says, no, she meant that. And talking about a specific comment is just devolves into what the person meant as opposed to the actual ideas behind it. And yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a good, that's a good, well-equipped to handle. It's a good uh, distinction because, and it's, yeah, that, it's a good distinction. The ideas behind it are things that you can get your, that you can really grapple with as a third party and you can have objective conversations about what was really going on in Germany and in Eastern Europe and around the world in terms of anti-Semitism um, during that period in history. Whereas like, is it just, is it actually worth anyone's time to try to parse the ramblings of an idiot? You know, and I don't think it is. Well, Trump's Twitter uh, feed is devoted to the idea that it is. But... Yeah. Well, and I mean, and I think that um, that that is a that's a fair comparison because I also don't think it is particularly meaningful to follow Trump's Twitter as a source of news. I mean, and yet you kind of have to because he announces major policy things through it. <clears throat> right. Like but then, he announced but the transgender then... ban that way. Yeah, and how many times has he announced, you know, right. Infrastructure Week or Peace with North Korea? It doesn't matter. Well, you got to live every week like it's Infrastructure Week. Well, yeah. So, you know, so I think, uh, again, trying yes. to make sure what we're – I mean, you were talking about kind of how we can be, um, you know, to the extent that we can uh, contribute in any meaningful way to the conversation as, you know, as white you know, two straight white guys who went to Yale. We we don't put that in the um, the sort of the intro, even though that's more relevant for this particular conversation. Um, <clears throat> and 
Yeah, I think I think the uh, I think that your distinction that you made about um, wasting time interpreting someone's comments as opposed to pulling back to objective realities of the issues that the comments were directed towards. You know, the, the latter is clearly more productive than the former um, because the former is, is about personalities and, you know, sort of individual choices that people have to make about how much charitability they, uh, ex you know, charity they extend to, um, to people who are making public comments. Yeah. And, uh, and you can't, you can't really have media objective conversations about, about those things because, um, the, there's not necessarily a good reason to extend any charity of interpretation to an alt-right troll. Right. Uh, and right. that so, was the other the other point, bringing it around on Trump's Twitter feed, the other point that we discussed that we're not going to discuss. The king that, of the alt-right trolls. Exactly. Is yeah. that this, um, you know, the, uh, just either last night or this morning, Trump put out a tweet about Elizabeth Warren that seemed to be making a reference to the, that some people have interpreted to be making a reference to the Trail of Tears in attacking her uh, claimed Native American heritage. And, you know, that's a remark where, as we just said, what would be the point of us going into whether or not that's what Trump meant when he said it? Like, what would that... <laughs> It'd be great if we with? spent this entire episode, and not just one episode, if we just spent two hours talking about all the things we're not going to discuss <laughs> <laughs> by going in great detail into right. each one. I just wanted to bring it around, show there are no tangents, show that his uh, his Twitter feed is the same thing we're talking about. Um, but yeah. anyway, um, with that as a, a a border to put on the conversation, we're gonna try to what we're gonna try to do today is to talk about things we can be better positioned to talk about that are less about specific things a person has said and more about general important um, directions we could go as a society. And the one we wanted to talk about today was capitalism. Um, this is, as David hinted at earlier, the Green New Deal um, was unveiled earlier this week. Um, not a ton of details, really. I mean, it's the actual deal, if you go to look at it, as a resolution is, I think, 14 pages or so, and it's largely a wish list of things Democrats would want to do. Um, but, you know, this has, we have seen, because of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders, calling themselves socialists or being part of the Democratic Socialists of America, we've sort of had to deal with this question of what is socialism? What is capitalism? Um, it, and it's it's something that has always driven me kind of bonkers because their um, socialism in particular has a variety of meanings depending on where you say it and to whom you say it. And um, I had always, um, going back many years when I first sort of learned the term socialism, to me, I had read communism as the abolition of private property and socialism as the government controlling all industry. Um, and and um, it turns out, as I grew up, that I saw that different people meant different things for socialism. Sometimes people, particularly uh, in, you know, in the East, uh, you know, in China, they tended to say you know, socialism. Uh, in, well, things that you could translate. To, it's, I, then again, you're translating to. The point is there are places where socialism means borderline communism and there are places where socialism is taken to mean like social democracy and 
Sometimes it's just a catch-all insult here in America because we had people saying that, you know, John Kerry was a socialist in 2004 because he preferred a top tax rate going back to 39.6% instead of saying at 34.6% and because he wanted catastrophic health insurance for everybody. And that's right. kind of a ridiculous definition of socialism that doesn't help at all. And then we get this thing where Bernie Sanders talks about, oh, you know, Denmark is social. Denmark and Sweden are what we want to be as socialism. But then Denmark and Sweden actually um, – or I think it was Denmark came out and said, we are not socialists. We are, um, I, I don't remember what term it was they actually used, but it was basically about, you know, we just have a, a strong safety net and welfare system, but it's not socialism. And Right, because, you know, I mean, it's in part because <clears throat> the type of um, interpretation and, you know, the linguistic, um, you know, God, those words just, is escaping me. I apologize for not getting it, but the, this quibbling over the, over terminology, uh, that you summarized that, you know, taking place in the United States and in reference to John Kerry, for example, you know, every country has its own example of that. And, you know, in one country, it might be that socialism is a perfectly acceptable term in the sense that it is one of the range of options that you have in front of you as a voter for supporting different options, but it's like the center left as opposed to the center right. But in another country, it might be the far left. And obviously in America, um, it's this catch all term that, um, that people can use to discredit any attempt to, um, to impose any kind of welfare, uh, policy in the country. But, but again, the, the, the conceptual, uh, at the conceptual level, these things blend into each other because would, you know, would taking healthcare and health insurance away from its dependence on private insurers, would that be good or bad for entrepreneurialism? You know, there's a very strong argument to be made that would in fact be very good for entrepreneurialism to allow workers to quit jobs that they are staying in only because they want to maintain their insurance and by uh, uh, creating a new government system to ensure that uh, provision of insurance people would be encouraged to take more risks and become more productive as a result you know so that's actually as you call that socialism is it socialist capitalism you know it, these these labels obviously stop uh, providing much utility at a certain point right. when if you they go ever into the did, Truly, if I they mean, ever provide any value. In my, in my personal view, and I'm just going to state this quickly so that people can know where my brain sort of sits on this. In my view, um, you know, we have things like, uh, like well, Medicare and Social Security are forms of socialism in insofar as they've got social right in the name, and you know, it's the government providing these things. But to me. Again, my original definition that, that in my mind, I don't know where, where I got this as the definition in my head, but it's the one that just has stuck is that it's the government owning and operating industry. And so to my mind, uh, even a single payer system isn't really socialism unless you're describing that as you've socialized the private insurance industry. But in Britain, the NIH, because it's entirely government owned, run and operated, et cetera, would be socialism. In my mind, there's a bit of a distinction between simply paying for something versus actually running it. Right. That's a, that's a fair distinction. But, I mean, there's also um, 
Yeah, I mean, again, it's <laughs> it sort of goes back to our earlier discussion of like here are all the things we're not going to talk about, right. and it's like, well, <laughs> now we're actually trying to sort of provide definitions for this ambiguous term instead of simply instead of perhaps not using the term because well, it's, it's not useful, but. Yeah. But we're damned to to live in the world that we're in, and people do use this word, so we have to kind of. Maybe but I think it is have. helpful to demonstrate but, what we think it means to us when we use it. Right. Uh, well, I think it's yeah. I think it's fair to say that or um, another phrase uh, commonly associated with or used alongside socialism is uh, control or control of the commanding heights of the economy, hmm. and so it's not necessarily uh, every single aspect of the economy, but the most crucial sectors in it. And so that at a certain point in time might've been um, steel and railroads, you know, whereas now healthcare is, has got to be right up in there and the health insurance industry um, as one section of what you would call healthcare uh, and actual hospitals and, you know, the provision of care as a different section of that. Um, right. And yeah, I mean, if you have the sort of the logic of, um, of the public option, obviously that was not adopted, but, um, you know, the public option in the context of Obamacare, the logic there would have been to create a minimum standard, uh, that would quote unquote compete with private, uh, providers and, you know, as you said, is that is that socialism? It's not controlling. Uh, I mean, it's 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 controlling in the way that government always exercises control because government has the authority. We talked about this before. Um, you know, government has the authority to impose regulations that render certain businesses uneconomical. I mean, that's that's why that's why people are worried about uh, rare earth metals in China because we have plenty of rare earth metals in the continental United States. But the process of mining them is so uh, difficult to do in accordance with U.S. law because of pollution and worker health and stuff like that, that we just don't do it. Right. You know, regulations have rendered that industry uneconomical. So what do you call that? Is that, is that socialism? Well, it's just it's the way that we've chosen to. Uh, to operate our economy, and the result is that effectively all of the um, mining and, and and refining is done by uh, by the Chinese, as I understand it. And yeah, you know, so the government always has that authority, so it always is in control in one sense, um, even if it isn't actually in the process of uh, engaged directly in the process of treating patients and you know. Uh, Signing the and, signing the checks and just a, you know a quick side note on that because just as as a note on the relevance of terminology you hear the term rare earth metals and oh China is going for rare earth metals in Afghanistan somehow they're the ones who are getting the contracts it sounds like it's this super rare super important thing that they're going to have control of but the reality is rare earth metal is a, is actually a bit of a misnomer it's called rare for historical reasons and not because there aren't a lot of them yeah. So I just Fair read point. a book on the, the cultural history of the period of elements. And um, when it got to talk about rare earth metals, it was pointing out that it had more to do with the origins of how difficult it was to extract them and not At their the actual rarity. Yeah. 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 So 
that's one of those things where you, that's, that's where you can hear a term and it might lead you to think when I first heard them talking about, oh, China's getting the rare earth metals in Afghanistan, I thought, oh, no, they're getting, <laughs> you know, it's this limited thing we all need so much of. And no, it turns out it's not actually rare. Um, but yes, your, your point on regulation, um, to me, I think what's sort of helpful is instead of talking about socialism, we can talk about what capitalism is and why capitalism is good if we take that view. And indeed, I take that view. Um, I've considered myself sort of a staunch capitalist ever since I can remember knowing the term um, and having any understanding about it. Um, but uh, capitalism doesn't really get defined all that much. The way that we quibble over whether various things are socialism, we don't really stop and say a whole lot as part of a national conversation, well, has this stripped the capitalist essence out of it? Um, and capitalism as a title is itself a little misleading because you say capitalism, well, what is capitalism about? The term makes it sound like it's about capital. It's about have about people being allowed to accumulate and uh, make decisions based on the capital, the money, the resources that they've accumulated, and to spend those the way that they want. Um, but often when we say capitalism, what we really mean is market-based competition. And then the term market-based right, competition the... becomes sort of sludged up itself. Right, and, and the, the overall picture here, and um, I'm sure we've skirted around this principle several times, even if we haven't talked about it or named it directly. It's just that, there are so many advantages that one gains by simplifying, and there are there there seem to be very few examples of public debate, particularly you know the further we move uh, in in time to the present, where appreciation of complexity and the articulation of complexity is rewarded. Right, like political speech, it's all about keeping it simple and uh, and communicating in sort of staying on message, right? So staying on message, keeping and keeping the message simple. And as you are saying there, and you know, I, I, I'm glad I didn't interrupt interrupt you because you ended up saying what I was going to interrupt you to say, which is that you know, capitalism itself is one of these simplifications that doesn't actually mean what people generally suggest is the virtue that comes of capitalism, right? Like the virtue that comes of capitalism is actually competition, innovation, entrepreneurialism, right? Those are what the people are actually talking about when they say a capitalist system. Um, and if you can, and if you can offer good reasons to believe that we can have more competition, more innovation, more entrepreneurialism, through things that might seem, oh my God, socialist, then, then why not, right? If you can make the case, but that 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 forces us to um, move down closer to the particular and and away from the broad overarching term, right? And that's where um, I mean, where I in particular think that the right in America has lost its way on the essence of capitalism, not necessarily because they have gotten confused, but because of whose interests they represent, um, which is when you talk about um, 
things like, uh, you know, who is your local cable provider? Who's your local internet provider? You don't have a lot of choices. You don't have a lot of competition there. And they keep saying, oh, it would be anti-capitalist if we had a net neutrality law. Um, you, know, uh, you know, we have to, w w whenever we do these deregulation things, that'll improve competition. But they're not really pro-competition. The, the right has a tendency not to be pro-competition so much as anti-regulation. And laissez-faire capitalism right. isn't capitalism. It's just a subset that you could go with for capitalism. And laissez-faire capitalism has a tendency to result in not getting a lot of competition. That's why we have antitrust laws. Now, this is something people recognized right. well over 100 years ago. Yeah. One, I mean, one thing going back to if we're going to talk about the Green New Deal, I think the people who uh, authored it and, I mean, certainly AOC, I think, I think the criticism... Uh, People, if not actually AOC, but in her orbit, people would say that the conversation you and I have been having has, you know, we've been pretending to talk about sort of socialism and capitalism, but we've actually stayed firmly within neoliberalism, you know, where we're talking about, okay, well, we're, you know, we shouldn't quibble about these uh, misleading or, mis you know, yeah, these misleading broad categories. We should talk more specifically about uh, innovation competition, that sort of thing. But I think the people behind the Green New Deal would say, you know, we, should, we shouldn't be talking about only those things. We should be talking about things like imperialism and social justice and racial justice. And, you know, these are things that are impossible to achieve within the, the sort of economic frame that, we, that you and I were staying with. And I think that has to be grappled with um, because, I mean, I'm, I'm perusing now the um, GP.org, you know, for the Green New Deal. Right. And it talks about cutting military spending by half, at least half, you know, to bring our troops home in order to avoid, you know, wasting money, safeguarding fossil fuel supplies or shoring up repressive oil monarchies. And that's the characterization of America's presence the military presence internationally and, you know, defending Japan. Is that, is Japan a repressive oil monarchy or, you know, a source of fossil fuels? I, I don't think so. South Korea, that I don't believe so. That, I don't believe that's the case either. You know, Israel, I mean, whatever you think about Israel, is it a repressive oil monarchy or a source of fossil fuels? Like, obviously not. Um, you know, that's, and that's a different, a whole entirely different set of debates, um, or potentially different, or it's a, I don't know, it's a different dimension of the debate that we began. Right. Yeah. There's, cause then we run into the problem that the green new deal has some terminology in it that we could focus on to the exclusion of what the ideas behind the bill are. And the example yeah. that you and I discussed earlier, the first thing that caught my eye when I saw an excerpt from it, probably the first thing that caught your eye was a line about people who are unable or unwilling to work. That word unwilling in there is going to cause so much argument and so many easy opportunities for point scoring by people on Fox news without creating any light or information. I'm honestly kind of yeah. surprised they put that word in there, that, that, that in there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting question. And I, I mean, I suspect that the answer is probably just that, I mean, we are at the end of the day talking about very dynamic and 
you know, people who have a lot of positives that you can that you can ascribe to them, but who are also just untested young people, right? Like, they just, I think that was just a huge mistake. But it was also a mistake that uh, was rooted in the ideological background that they're coming from, which is that the people have a right to uh, a certain livelihood. And if you're talking about rights, if you take that term seriously, then you have a right to that income, whether you are willing or unwilling to work. And if that's what they believe, then, to, you know, then it makes sense that they, um, when they were vetting the document or editing it later, that they didn't step back to say, you know what, this is perhaps a bridge too far. <laughs> you know, we want to be, we want to be bold here, but let's maybe imply this thing rather than actually stating it explicitly. Right. And there's also the possibility that, I mean, so much of what a lot of the people behind the Green New Deal, so much of what they've gotten their names on and their success from was to break a lot of shibboleths, to say a lot of things, to say the word socialism that were that previously people would shudder from. And they've had success breaking those verbal norms before. It might not even occur to them that it would actually be a problem to break another one. Yeah. Or even if it did occur to them, they'd think, well, you know, we got successful by being who we are, and we're not going to step back from that, even if it could cause a problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they, they these are bold people, and um, you know, you don't you don't become, I mean, you don't achieve what what AOC in particular has without boldness, and right. um, that's again, it's. Uh, it's an inextricable part of the medium or the, um, you know, the media phenomenon that she has become. Um, it's not just that it's not just the ideas that she has. It's not just the charisma and the social media savvy. I think, you know, a central part of it is the origin story of the underdog scrapper. And so, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, but you know, but you, you take the good with the bad when it comes to that, because if you're bold, then, you're going to you're going to get your foot in your mouth at some point. Absolutely. And I mean, look at, you know, the two of us, we're five years older than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We've spent you know much of our lives <laughs> thinking about all of these issues. We never dropped what we were doing and ran for Congress against, you know, a long time incumbent high ranking Democratic Party official. Like she yeah. did something far bolder than we've ever done and it completely paid off. And now she has way more influence than we do over anything. Like, you know, it's, there's, there's, there's a lesson in there for, you know, for us as people who, you know, the other, the other half of being these straight white guys who went to Yale is that we're the people who jumped through all of the hoops we were told to jump through. You do this in high school and take this test and practice for this and do these extracurriculars so you can be accepted by this admissions board to get into this school. And then you start preparing to go to this grad school and do this thing. And we did that stuff, but you know, we certainly, I didn't think outside the box enough to ever end up, you know, I've had friends who are like, you'd be a great congressman. You should run for Congress. And whenever they'd said that over the years, I was always like, no, 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 there's no path from where I am to that because that seems like the logical thing to do. And it is the logical thing, but if you don't take risks, you know, sometimes you need that 1% payoff. Um, you know, it's sometimes you, you, you know, you miss all of the shots you don't take essentially. Yeah, right. And there's a boldness and a fresh thinking in somebody who is willing to challenge that 
I mean, right. Yeah. Well, and and uh, the the implication of, uh, or at least a potential interpretation of some of the way we were talking about, like, oh, well, you know, did she not think about, or like, this document is not her document, so did right. they not think, um, you know, about people reacting badly to this word, to that word, and whatever the particular, whatever the answer would actually be if you could sit down with everyone involved in drafting the document and ask them, you know, go through the, the document with a, with a fine tooth comb, whatever they would say about any particular uh, turn of phrase, the overall response would presumably be, uh, yeah, we wanted to grab you people by the lapels and shake you because that whole system that you, Charles, just now described is broken. Either right. because it's a system that benefited it, us. It's either people like well, us. It's, right. It's either broken because you got the two of us. Right. Exactly. Because, yeah. In this in this position, or it's broken. You know, more seriously, I think it's broken because um, when it works, it has people sustaining this unsustainable structure in our society, and, and that's unsustainable both in the sense of not opening enough spaces to new voices from you know, new Americans, just to put it as broadly as possible, uh, or because it's unsustainable insofar as we're headed towards a climate catastrophe if we don't move very quickly. Um, or it's, so that's like, that's the, that's a system that is broken by working, right? Or it's broken because it doesn't work because for every one of you and myself, there are at least a couple more people who jumped through all the hoops, you know, in the way that we did, but ended up with tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt and maybe jobs. I mean, certainly in the current economy, most people do have jobs, but not necessarily jobs that are, that offer them any uh, hope of actually paying off that debt and living a decent life afterwards. So, you know, the system, I think that the, the, the authors of this document would say, um, these are not mistakes, you know, these turns of phrase, because every, everything that we've written challenges a system that fails when it's working and also fails when it's broken. And, is for, you know, what's your response to that? You know, we're, we're challenging your entire worldview. And uh, there's a certain appeal, I mean, like, that kind of rebelliousness uh, has a certain innate charisma to it. Right. And I think particularly, or at least for a certain subset of people, and I think, you know, it also resonates with a core American value of, you know, you can't tell me what to do. <laughs> you know, I'm a rebel. Um, and it's interesting because, I mean, on the subject of ag agriculture, I've kind of been, I've been trying to educate myself uh, about new... I mean, so so the document talks about like small farms, yeah, and says you know big it it, it 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 opposes big agribusiness and small farms, and the implication is big agribusiness is bad, small farms are good, but you know can small farms feed the world? Can small farms feed the country? Do you not need agribusiness to create? chemical fertilizer and pesticides and all these things. And 
yeah, there's just an, it's an interesting thing to you know to think about the fact that you need a certain amount of mulish resistance to orthodoxy in order to challenge concentrated, established incumbent players in any segment of the economy. Let's take agriculture just because I brought it up in this setting. Um, but how do you know if you're right? Because, you know, maybe the sort of small scale organic farmers of the world really are right. And you have to, we have to open up an opportunity for them to, uh, to demonstrate that their system can work in feeding the world, but maybe they're kind of charlatans and it's basically the equivalent of the anti-vaxxers. And the science really is on the side of the big industrial producers. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that it is in this case. I'm, I'm, I'm really not trying to make a devil's argument for industrial agriculture. Um, but, you know, as, as, as a mere citizen, right, as someone who's an, not an expert but wants to have an opinion because I want to be able to vote and advocate, you know, for the type of future in our society that our society deserves and needs. Um, you know, how do you like, how do you, how do you know, how are you confident that the challenge to the orthodoxy is correct and offers a new model that you need to give an opportunity to, to prove itself? And how do you know when it's just, you know, it's just anti-vaxxers, for example. Right. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, my take on, to get just again to share what my view on this had been for some time is i've um i feel like a lot of i i tend from my understanding of the practical truths of the issue from what i hear and my sources like the economist could be biased in one particular direction um but my understanding is that you know the we my understanding is that they are wrong on this concept of wanting more small farmers as opposed to bigger farmers, that, that economies of scale are hugely important in this and that advances we've made in agriculture have, I mean, among other things, you know, we used to live in the, the point where 80, 90% of the population had to be involved, had to be farmers. And now it's like 2%. And that has freed up so many other people to do so many other jobs. And um, it gets a little confused when people want to say, well, the big farm is bad, presumably because it's big and it's a concentration of wealth and it causes these issues. But people, sometimes you do have to pick apart the issues involved when people say, oh, well, Monsanto is bad. There yeah, are I, I really did not. I apologize now for, for bringing up agriculture because I did not want to. It is its own big tangent. Um, to, I mean, I'll to, just, I'll just to say make quickly you swallow that. that yeah, exactly. I'll I mean, just, I, was just, I was really just talking more about like trying to form opinions without expert knowledge. Which is a which is a huge challenge to our society, right? And the other the thing about that is you can form the opinion, sort of like what we said um, about the Covington Catholic people, where we said one thing and then more information came out. Well, part of the thing is we you have to be willing to change your mind when the, when you do learn the expert information, or you should right. make sure that what you do before you have that information doesn't have lasting consequences like harassing people. Yeah, or, or maybe a different way to phrase it would be that you should make claims in ways that are sort of conversant with the terms of debate currently used, right? So, like, if you're going to make a claim about 
want, you know, about a new system being better than the established system, then you have to present your claims in ways that can be falsified, right? right? Or that it's like, okay, well, you expert on agriculture talk about XYZ. Well, here, I'm going to also talk about XYZ and show you how my system is better, right? That, that would ideally be the way that the conversation would, would unfold. Right. And um, it's, it's sometimes difficult with the level of nuance. And this is just the, the only last point I want to make about big agribusiness is that somebody talks about Monsanto as if it's monolithically evil when it's, it's possible. And indeed I think is the case that Monsanto does a lot of incredibly useful, helpful things that advance civilization. And I tend to be in favor of GMOs because the science does not back them being bad. It just doesn't. We have to be willing to change our minds if it does, but it doesn't right now. But well, Monsanto... it doesn't, it's bad in the sense of like detrimental to our health. Right. Is what you meant, right? Well, but I'm getting to the other half of that, which is some people say, well, Monsanto is evil because it produces its own genetically modified crops, and then the seed gets blown by the wind into somebody else's crop, and then they sue that person for using their patented stuff. And suing somebody when your crop flows into, like, flows from the air into their field um, is not, it's not the same type of problem as creating it in the first place. Like, they can be the good guys when they create a crop that has a higher yield or a resistance to whatever without having to use pesticides, and then be the bad guys when they over-enforce their patent. Like you can right. be I mean, good on I, some I, things and bad on others. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think I agree with you. But in talking about things like agriculture, big ag, and you know, quote unquote Monsanto, um, that you have to separate the the woo element of the discussion in like. I want I want natural products. I, I want natural organic things. I don't want anything that's been GMO'd, you know, which is um, which is irrational because the grain is grain for the most part. Separate that discussion. I mean, I mean, as you said, there's no evidence that the GMOs are dangerous to human health in themselves separate that discussion from the discussion of the effects of concentrated power in any segment of, of society, which implicates what you were saying about aggressive uh, lawsuits and, and things like that, or uh, the aspect of, um, you know, farmers having to continually buy seed from Monsanto as opposed to saving their own, which, you know, is just a very different issue if you're talking about farmers in, northern India as opposed to farmers in, um, you know, the northern Great Plains who might not, who, you know, I mean, if the farmers in the Great, northern Great Plains don't save their seed anyway, you know, because it's very complicated. But the point is, rather than, you know, sinking into the quagmire of that complexity in this conversation, that I think we can pull back to the idea that, um, you know, you should separate the, uh, the kind of, um, hippie stuff, you know, the, the, the sort of prejudices and the buzzwords, you know, separate those prejudice, you know, any conversation about those things like, like, you know, GMO, um, from conversations about the effects of concentrated power, which are perhaps more universal. I mean, those are things you can talk about in more, um, ecumenical terms. 
if that makes sense. And I know in that vein, one of the things that I wanted to bring up, um, because I think it cuts to the sort of part of the core of, of like capitalism and where regulation is acceptable, um, is uh, like when I took antitrust classes in law school, my professor talked about how there's sort of a theory that seems to be done more by practice than by explicitly being stated um, that if you come up with something that creates a sort of natural monopoly um, on like one level of technology, in this example, let's say Microsoft winning the operating system wars, they came up with it and they managed to gain this gigantic market dominance that way, largely through things that were, you know, acceptable, um, you know, in, through, through innovation in various kinds of things. Uh, some people will hate Microsoft and will dispute that. But my point is, then you go to the next sort of generation of what the technology is about and you get to the browser wars. And suddenly Microsoft is using the market power it got in the previous generation to force its product on people. And that's when they started to get attacked by the antitrust people. And um, so there's there's basically this this view that what happens with a lot of antitrust policy is you can obtain massive amounts of market power within what you're you're allowed to use that with the product that you that you created through competition and and so forth. But stifling but stifling competition with anti-competitive things using that market power is not acceptable for the next thing you're working on, if that makes any sense. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, and that's, but that, well, that's also the, um, I mean, there's a, I'm trying to remember the name of this guy, but there was a wonderful talk I, I went to book launch at Princeton maybe five years ago um, by a political scientist who was discussing his book, which I believe was simply called Oligarchy. And the argument was that, you know, it's quite simple. Very, it was a pretty slim book, but uh, when you hear the the argument, you might you might question why there's even a need for a book because it's such a uh, powerful and elegant concept. Uh, you know that oligarchy is um, not like the halfway point, or you know it's not the bad version of aristocracy. You know, take it away from the classical conception. Right. As painful as that might be for the two of us, I know. but. You know, that oligarchy is the structure of um, politics when the wealthy are allowed to use their wealth to increase their own power. Right. So it's very, I mean, it's very straightforward. Um, and it may, I mean, it may be sort of deceptively straightforward because um, in a society like the United States, how do you separate, for example, money from speech? But that, I mean, let's not, let's absolutely not go down that tangent right now, but um the, the the basic idea uh, that that you pointed out of a sort of pure original competitive monopoly that you gain simply by being better than everyone else should be separated from the knock-on effects of wielding the power of that position in the economy to stifle future comp competition. Right, like those, it should be simple enough to to you know to separate those two things and see that one is at least in a particular moment in time, uh, actually, if not a good thing itself, it is the unavoidable outcome of a good thing. 
right? Like the, the, the innovation and creation of the new product that is simply head and shoulders better than anything else out there creates an, it, it, you know, it, it creates a good thing. It creates a monopoly, which is just everybody wants this great thing. And so they just don't buy anything else. And then that's the only thing there is to buy because everyone else goes out of business. But then at some point that, that it calcifies and becomes, you know, or it ossifies and becomes a, a negative thing if they are then allowed to use that position to prevent future challengers. Right. And, and of course, I'm sure plenty of people are yelling at the podcast right now saying, oh, Microsoft only got where it was with its operating system because of these various ploys involving marketing, you know, involving tie-ins. But we're just going to set that aside for the moment. And we're going to we're going to assume that in a theoretical industry where this occurs, you know, that's what's going on. And so right. we're not smart or well informed enough to to right. speak in anything but vague generalizations. So to that's that's the same thing I say on every first date, um, <laughs> the, when, especially when they ask me how many siblings I have. Um, sure. But uh, so so but when I think about, you know, going back earlier, what's the point of capitalism? What is it that makes capitalism good? Why do I think it's the best system? You know, it has this element of competition and consumer choice. It's, it, but, but that gets confusing because if you said capitalism is the marketplace, well, there are market failures. And some of those market right. failures are anti-competitive and result in very bad things happening. And so is it anti-capitalist to adjust what the market does um, so that competition works better? Because sometimes the market and competition are at odds with each other. And, and, you know, that's, that's a real issue that people have to deal with. And I, I'm kind of concerned that right now the right in this country sort of t has taken the laissez-faire capitalist view that, um, that it's about the market and the market without regulation and not about competition. And so that's, when, that's how you get them saying some of the crazy things they say about net neutrality where, you know, and by the way, we, they got rid of net neutrality and later people have analyzed it and said, yeah, it did absolutely nothing good for consumers. But, um, yeah, so uh, the emphasis, as, as I said, needs to be on if there's no competition, then you don't really have a free market. And this is most clearly true for a lot of people with their cable providers. When you move into a new place, how many choices do you have for cable providers? It's usually like one or two. And then you're, and you're just kind of stuck with them. It's, you know, and it's, it's not great. There, would anyone say that there's any realistic competition between cable providers and what is one of the things people are most irritated at having to deal with their cable providers <laughs> because they're not really, I, I don't know if I've ever heard your, your voice, this, uh, this exercised. Well, before. let's it's just say some, some bad blood. I, this conversation. I have had, you know, people say they hate the post office or they hate the DMV. I have had very few bad experiences with either. And so when people say that, I sort of, I don't roll my eyes because I know it's different in different places. Like it's obviously worse to deal with a post office in a big city than it is in the suburbs of Ohio. But I have had horrible experiences with cable providers where they were doing things that I was like, how is this even legal um, to slam me with fees that they promised they wouldn't give me and then simply deny right. that they'd ever made the, prog the promise? Like it's... It's bad. People really do not like their cable providers, and I believe it's because you don't have the choice to switch. And when they said, oh, well, if net neutrality, if they start doing bad things, you can just switch to another provider, except you can't. Um, and, that was, yeah. and that was part of where Microsoft goes into the browser wars. I don't know anybody who thought Internet Explorer was a remotely acceptable product. 
um, compared to any of the other ones that are out there. But everybody was on Internet Explorer because of Microsoft's market power. Like it was, yeah. I mean, I, there I if there were any real competition in the browser wars, no one would have used Internet Explorer. Like it, but, it was just awful. Yeah. So, um, I think, you know, it's interesting. We were trying to talk about the Green New Deal, and we talked about capitalism. We talked about uh, socialism. We talked about the the need to avoid talking about those terms because. Uh, <laughs> because of how vague they are. And we, we then exempted ourselves from what we just said and, and then talked about them in excruciating and well, excruciating non-detail maybe. Um, hey, there's insight but, to be gleaned from our inability to do what yeah, we say we want to do. Right. Well, but, so I think, I mean, one, one other way of talking about the green new deal. It, so it's a, it's a pretty vague document in some ways. Very and then it's very annoyingly precise in certain other ways. Um, like I mentioned, you know, I'm, I'm something of a defense hawk, I guess. Um, and I don't know. I just I, I, I take this as just a uh, like caring what words actually mean. And so this idea that, you know, American bases around the world, all they do is oppress people as opposed to just. Yeah, I find that just incredibly angry, I mean, or, you know, uh, irritating. I, I become incredibly angry thinking about this. But, I mean, it's just a fact. Japan, South Korea, extraordinarily successful societies. Western Europe, extraordinarily successful societies. Societies that people are willing to risk dying, risk falling into slavery. Modern-day 21st century, honest-to-God, slavery in order to reach these societies. And how do those societies exist? Well, successful, you know, <laughs> the successful ability to overcome uh, the sort of um, the conjuring power of, you know, the word socialism and actually enact social welfare, welfare policies and a reasonably balanced, you know, a mixed uh, economy. Uh, but also because of the ages of American military power that protected those societies and allowed them to uh, avoid engaging in arms races because of the offshore balancer in the form of the United States or the onshore balancer in the form of the you know, 50,000 American troops in, you know, in Germany uh, or something actually a pretty similar number that were in Japan as well. So you know, I, I really do find this very, very annoying. Um, and so the Green New Deal obviously is not, aimed for people like me because they include this, what a, you know, sort of uh, throwaway uh, paragraph about, the, the, it characterizes the American military presence overseas in this way. And I would suggest um, very quickly. But I, think, but I think, but just to, so my point was, despite the, the fact that they're saying that, it's like, this is just part, this is, this is a document that aims to unite a certain mem a certain section of the broad spectrum of American politics and the relationship to the parties, you know, is separate from the question of what's in the document. Because and we've talked about this, that like the Democratic Party is just a it's a broad coalition of the center to the left. And so 
you know, it, it's probably not, it's not actually a problem necessarily that this doesn't speak to everyone who is thinking about voting for Democrats, right? Because it's just a, it's a series of, it's a, it's a relatively coherent series of ideas that will be used to offer um, arguments for the direction of the, of the Democratic Party. But, you know, it isn't like a planning document for the Democratic Party, right? It's a, it's a, it's the basis of further debate. And in that sense, it's, uh, you know, it's positive. It's just, it's democracy, right? Right. I mean, you know, if, if one is to step back a, look, a, a little bit and say, oh, there's a lot of unworkable stuff in here. Well, have you ever looked at like what a party platform is at a national convention? <laughs> Exactly. Like, and this, if again, you look at the Republican platform, platforms a, in like any of their more recent national conventions, it would horrify you. Right. Right. So, you know, some of these are starting points and not necessarily things that are actually going to get implemented. And I want to um, say so. A quick note on what you just said is that you know we read a, case, a, a book for one of our classes, Michael Mandelbaum's The Case for Goliath, which does right. a very good job at book length explaining why the U.S. military presence around the world is very beneficial to us. Um, and it really is. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I don't, I don't know that I'd refer to myself as a hawk, but I'm certainly of a mindset with you that we, that it is good that we have our troops in those places and we do have to you know, be ready to act around the world. Um, yeah. And, uh, and the, the one other note that I want to make sure that we, we talk about on all of this, because, you know, when they say, how is it that you, um, how do you become like Denmark or Sweden, without becoming Venezuela. Right. And that's, I mean, if there were one specific discussion that we could be having as a nation right now, that's the one I would like to see. I would like to see Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez and others on the left put out some sort of explanation for here's why what we're doing is like Denmark and Sweden and isn't like Venezuela. Because whenever anybody suggests anything that smacks of socialism or you know, government giveaways or redistribution, people say Venezuela on the right. Um, right. And I want to no, be part of the problem is, yeah, part of the problem is that the Republicans, you know, who make those types of, you know, the Republicans would say, you're on the road to Venezuela, you know, all too often then shut their ears and pretend not to hear the answer of, well, okay, Dem you know, Denmark doesn't have a problem not becoming Venezuela. So, right. you know. Although I would, but as I said, here, I would here's like what to we're going to do X, Y, Z. And, yeah. but then on the other hand, you know, all too often. I mean, so I, I listen to Democracy Now! because I find it gives me a bracing uh, challenge to what would otherwise be my, or, you know, what what the rest of my, quote-unquote, neoliberal tendencies. Um, but their coverage of this ongoing crisis in Venezuela is is disgusting. I mean, it's actually, it's unbelievable the extent to which they're willing to apologize for and propagandize for, uh, for Maduro. That's, see, I don't, uh, I'm not familiar with that podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm I have to it's say, a, well, it's a leftist news outlet that I came across first when uh, Amy Goodman, who is the sort of head reporter, um, was one of the people covering the Standing Rock uh, protests. Oh, okay. And I thought, like, okay, this is this is a good place to go for my dose of like radical left, um, and and so it was. Um, 
you know, not uh, again, I'm, I'm not like endorsing them. It's just a, it's a source of information to provide a viewpoint. Um, but I found their willingness to, dis- I mean, the, you know, the, their, their tendency to talk about regime change and to characterize this as uh, all the unrest is, is due to manipulation and economic boy, you know, economic warfare by the United States. I mean, it's just, just a stunning refusal to ascribe agency to the Venezuelans who are reaching the end of their rope and <laughs> trying to get this terrible uh, system to end, hmm. you know, but that, this is now a, actually, I guess it's not really that far away from our topic. No, of it's not. I mean, because, I, yeah. I, I was, Venezuela has been in my head the whole time we've been talking about this and it's almost, you know, right. it merits its own podcast episode. But one of the things for me that I look at as sort of a litmus test is when I hear a politician praise Maduro, then I'm just sort of like, okay, they're one of the crazy people. Yeah. Like that's, and I would, cause I would, Venezuela has been this wonderful example of what not to do at pretty much every point down the line when you have people who are economically illiterate in charge of economic policy. And when you want to put out, well, what are some of the things that separates capitalism from disastrous things going wrong? Venezuela, price controls. Price controls are one of those things. One of the things that leads to to shortages, that leads to empty grocery shelves, that leads to these long lines to get the rationed items is price controls. Because price yeah. controls destroy the market incentive to create something. Yeah, they really do. Looking. Unlike a lot of the things people on the right in America say do, where they're like, oh, well, if you had health insurance, you'd work less. That is yeah. on a completely different category than price controls, which I consider to be absolutely abominable. Right. And let me let me now sort of <laughs> slam on the brakes to go back to something I said earlier about government authority to regulate, which actually is a crucial distinction I should have made at the time, which is that the government can have the authority to regulate. But if, if anybody actually thinks the government will regulate in a certain way, that they have the authority to do, it could very well destroy the system a la Venezuela, which is that, you know, I mean, the, 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 the restraint and the signaling that goes into discussions of, for example, the Federal Reserve setting interest rates, you know, that actually moves decision-making in the economy. And that's in a... Uh, that's an institution that has had, you know, an extremely long history of, politi- of, of, of consensus and, and mostly a very broad consensus for the need to shield that institution from political pressure. And, and you still have uh, just huge effort put into interpreting what they're going to do, anticipating what they're going to do, uh, you know, and, and, and it actually, it actually moves uh, the economy through uh, the rippling of, of private act, you know, the, the rippling of decision-making of private actors. Um, and the, the whole, you know, the, the, I mean, a big part of the whole um, mid-century, you know, Chicago school critique of command economies is the uh, the way in which, it, you know, is to compare the elegance of the emergent order 
of a capital system, capitalist system where, um, you know, that we, where the marginal price offers the signal that all the participants need to, to make their plans for every stage in the sort of ongoing dance of the economy and setting that elegance you know, next to the, um, the sort of bludgeoning of government command uh, for, for prices or even for like things like interest rates. And that's, um, that is an important distinction because if the, if, if participants in the economy suspect that the 800 pound gorilla is going to just go on a rampage and start doing unpredictable things, then the, the impact on their decision-making will be very negative because they'll start to take positions that protect themselves against what the government's doing as opposed to decisions that would result in, um, in broader economic activity and prosperity. You know what I'm saying? So, so it's like the, you know, Chekhov's uh, rifle over the mantelpiece. You know, it is there, the government's power to regulate. It is there, but you have to indicate that despite the fact that it's hanging there over the mantelpiece, it will not be fired. <laughs> I'm not sure I follow any, all of that. Any of that makes sense. But um, I mean, I, cause I would, you know, draw out as the key distinction that stuff that the federal reserve does isn't, I mean, it, 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 there's a difference between having an effect and commanding specific results. Like you, you can't command the economy to have bread at this price. That's just not that's a thing you, my point. Yeah, that's not a thing that's you can or should do. But you can if do you things to, that affect the, the price you, of bread. But it's not the right, solution. Depending on what you do, the the, the, you can crowd out action by market by private market participants or more private market participants that will respond to the uh, more clumsy attempts of government to enter into the economy and result in unexpected outcomes. Right. I mean, cause that's what, I mean, that's what we're seeing right now in Turkey is, um, you know, there were relatively successful steps taken to stabilize the economy, uh, excuse me, to stabilize the, uh, the value of the currency. Um, but that was not successful in, uh, turning the direction of the economy as a whole around. And it also had no impact on price inflation, which has, slowly continued and now the government is trying desperately to pressure various actors in the economy to avoid raising prices but it's it's basically the you know it, because it's all for political uh ends the economic fundamentals are are going to come on one end or the other, either the, you know, either these uh, market participants are going to raise their prices or they themselves will, uh, you know, will suffer from falling profits and therefore cut their activity. So, you know, the, the economy as a whole is going to suffer one way or the other. The government doesn't want the prices to rise, but the result of that is going to be businesses engaging in less economic activity because they will have less profit. So, you know, these types of things, obviously, as a as a as a neoliberal, yeah, that's the way I think. But um, you know, we're seeing that in Turkey, and we're seeing the effect of that type of 
government approach to forcing the economy to pursue, um, you know, attempting to force the economy to move in certain directions. And we're seeing the effect of what now, 15 years of that in Venezuela? When did the uh, Chavez well, Maduro start? was there in the early Bush administration, W. Bush administration. I'm sorry, Chavez, well, Chavez was there in the early. Because yeah. I remember that one of Bush's early foreign policy snafus involved recognizing a coup attempt in Venezuela over Chavez. Right. Or at least trying to. That was one of that was that was the first time I think I had heard of Chavez was the Bush administration's reaction to a coup attempt there. Yeah, I'm just trying to remember I'm trying to look at the Um but it was president from nineteen ninety nine to okay. twenty thirteen, so a full full twenty years. Yeah. Um of of Chavismo. Not been great for the people anyway. in Venezuela. That, well, and the other element to add there with, with Turkey is that Erdogan does not understand how interest rates affect the currency, or at least he didn't as of when he was, uh, if I recall correctly, at one point he was demanding that they cut interest rates to stop inflation. Right. <laughs> it's just like, what? Have you, right. what? Well, yeah, my, I mean, the, my understanding of this is that there is a, there is a school of, uh, developmentalist economics that articulates a way in which for certain economic cases that logic would hold true mm-hmm. that low interest rates would uh, would lower inflation or rather that high interest rates would increase inflation but you know it's it's just the consensus of everyone that Erdogan is misapplying that that case because it has no bearing on Turkey. Rather so, like the Laffer curve, the idea that you could increase tax revenue by cutting taxes and result, resulting in more economic activity is theoretically right, could, very valid and goes all the way yeah, back exactly. to like a, the 13th or so century um, economist, Ibn Khaldun. Um, but and but the idea but what happened between Khaldun and Laffer is that Laffer was sort of the <laughs> – right. In those mere 700 800 years, years yeah, that, yeah. that he was the first person to – Laffer was one of the earlier ones to say, hey, this theoretical thing we mentioned is actually applying right now. And yeah. I don't think that we actually were anywhere near a Laffer curve scenario, at least the way that he – I mean that's all its own complicated thing about, well, maybe it doesn't pay for itself, but maybe it's less expensive than it seems. I mean it's – there are some whole different debates about – about that yeah. just as there's a different debate between is a 70 percent tax rate not capitalist anymore yeah like that's so i feel like i feel like we somehow managed to talk a lot about a lot of different things and somehow miss the core of what this moment really demands that we talk about when talking about things like the green new deal and can we can we have a socialist but still functioning economy in the United States. So can we, can we marry the socialism that people like, you know, AOC and um, significant members of, you know, younger demographics that they seem to want? Can we, can we, can we have an American capitalist socialism? Well, we should work on writing a path that explains how to get to Denmark without hitting Venezuela. Um, but yeah. likewise, I would I would note in there that, you know, they call themselves socialists. But then you look at some of their proposals, and they're not really socialist. 
exactly. They're, you know, they say we want to be like Denmark and Sweden, but Denmark and Sweden are not right. socialist countries in that sense. They're market economies. And I feel like, and you know, as I said earlier, I really believe in competition and the marketplace. They have to be functioning healthily, which is why you need antitrust enforcement and you need some regulation. But the fundamentals of having competition and a marketplace are the essence of capitalism. And it's when you move away from those too much, like Venezuela setting price controls, when you're basically saying you can't have this kind of competition and this kind of market anymore, that's when you start to hit a problem. And I'm sure right now, conservatives who would hear what I'm saying would be shouting, so why don't you support school choice more? And that's, of <laughs> course, that, of course, is its own separate thing. And I actually really have not settled on how I feel about um, all of some of the school choice arguments, because I, I can see points for and against it. And but as a practical matter, I'm not sure. Well, anyway, that's its, that's its own very complicated thing. And one of the yeah. principles that I think we support on this show the most is that you have to be prepared to deal with complexity. If a situation is complex, you have to be willing to say, well, in general, I believe this, but in this situation, it just didn't work. We tried it. It didn't work. Or we tried something. Right, different, It didn't right. work. You can't, if you're going to be empirical at all, you have to you know, be consistent with some level, not necessarily entirely consistent, but reasonably consistent on empiricism. You don't ever want to be in that situation where you say, okay, it works in, it works in practice, yeah. but what about yeah, theory? Yeah, well, and this, should be, and this should be something that we can say is an American value. This is an American tradition of localism and experimentation, and it's necessary because a system that could work perfectly well in the suburbs of Boston is also something that might be impossible to make function in, you know, the ninth ward of Houston. Um, and it's just all the goodwill and even potentially all the economic incentives in the world, you know, cannot take the system that would work in one setting and make it work in another. Um, and you just have to figure out how to make a thing work in its local context. Um, and a part of that has to involve the, I mean, just as a matter of principle and also just as a matter of necessity, pragmatic necessity, what the local community itself wants, you know, I mean, that's another, that's, that's gotta be another part of the, uh, uh, both the value discussion and the, uh, um, the sort of pragmatic aspect of it, but I don't know. I, I, I felt a little, you know, it's, it, it should not, it's not particularly courageous to stand up on a soapbox and say, we should, you know, let the community tell us what they want because that's a, a quite a, quite a brave thing to, to call for democracy. I'm such a America, leader. I'll do but, whatever you want me to do. Right. And sometimes, and sometimes you need to, to do the hard work of separating yourself away from uh, the community to to look at the facts and and craft an expert opinion that is in fact a better you know more informed view. But um, but as with many things, the you know in the final result, you got to figure out what can work. You know your your, your perfectly crafted uh, esoteric you know scholarly expert you know view. Uh, isn't going to be worth anything if you can't implement it and you're not going to be able to implement it if you don't get people to at least, you know, accede to it, even if they don't understand it.
Right. I mean, it's the Edmund Burke statement that when you elected him, you elected him for his judgment as well as to be a representative. They right. owe you – those elected officials owe you their judgment. And yeah. to have them go against their own judgment on something just because you want it, is that really a good system? It doesn't seem great yeah. to me. Yeah, well, you know, and I I, um, I mentioned – I want to highlight, you know, I mentioned the anti-vax uh, – the example of anti-vaxxers as a, as a conundrum before because I really value – you know, I was I was homeschooled for a couple of years, and I really value the, the fact that my parents had the choice to say, like, we just don't want to send our kids to school. And there were certain hoops they had to jump through, but they were pretty, they were quite permissive. And I, you know, I greatly value the freedom that that implies. Uh, but at the same time, it goes hand in hand with people who want the freedom uh, to to deny life-saving medical intervention to their children, which has the additional effect of putting other children in danger. You know, I mean, the anti anti-vaxxing is just an abhorrent, abhorrent uh, corruption of the freedom that we should, you know, that, you, that we should in, in, uh, enjoy in in a democracy like the United States, but it's uh, but it's a it's a quite a vexing one because it really does seem to rely on a degree of freedom that is you know it's hard to find a print. It's easy enough to say like, well, okay, we should just have a carve out for vaccinations because that's obvious that people everyone should get vaccinations, but you know those carve outs are not always that obvious, mm. right? Well, there's there is and and on that note, I mean, there are some things where it can be hard for an individual who has never witnessed a time before vaccinations to understand why they're important, and that's part of there was um, there was a joke that I don't know if this was ever something that was actually said, but something that sort of sums it up, sums up situations like these is, is is an exchange that I've seen quoted a bunch of times on the internet of Oh, did you hear Jonas Salk died? Who was Jonas Salk? He's the guy who invented the polio vaccine. What's polio? And, you know, like, as you know, that that's kind of what the problem is. You don't properly value what vaccinations do unless you, you know, if you've lived in the era where their success is considered to be essentially universal, then suddenly you don't value them anymore. And the other answer that I hear to people say, well, what did people do before vaccinations? And the answer is they died. They died in large quantities. Um, there's a reason people used to have like nine kids because only two or three of them would survive. And not all of that was related to diseases, but you know, it, it's, there are, it, yeah, the vaccination stuff. Well, I mean, I'm going to bring this up because there, I mean, I'm, I am just horrified by this ongoing, um, measles outbreak in Washington state. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's just, um, you know, it goes back to something that I talk about a lot, I feel, in the context of sort of the internet culture or the, the culture that we are building on top of the infrastructure, the communications infrastructure of social media. But it's just especially galling that when things could be so good, they remain bad. <laughs> yeah. Or in fact, or, 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 or generate new ways of being bad. And... Um, the vaccination issue is is akin to that. That like, you know, why are we dealing with this kind of whack a mole? It's like 
this was something, it was just a huge accomplishment of human civilization to get this one right, and we have to do it again. <laughs> it's just, it's, I, I laugh because it's so tragic. Right. Well, that's, and that's the question that I think we, um, are, we may get the answer to in a couple of decades, which is, will the generation that grew up in this internet, because people who pre-internet, if you saw stuff written down and published, it probably went through like a real book and a real publisher, unless it was, you know, a random mimeographed pamphlet somebody was handing out on the street. If you saw yeah, something, from what, just uh, plagiarizing something. Right. If you if you saw like a real book or a textbook, it probably was providing you with real information. And now we're in the internet age, when people who grew up being used to being able to trust scientific-looking things that they saw are now seeing things that look scientific and make a bunch of superficial arguments that seem compelling. And they can see that in a context where no one is there over their shoulder to say, yeah, that's not true. I'm, so the question is, will our generation, well, maybe the generation after ours, maybe including ours, will the generation that grew up with the Internet be inoculated against that type <laughs> of anti-vaccination stuff? Because, and, and, uh, because they've, they've grown up knowing the Internet is not trustworthy. Um, I mean, maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, at some level, we will just see. But I doubt that, um, going back to what I was saying before about sort of ex just expecting evil, hmm. I think that that, uh, you know, there's, uh, evil maybe is the wrong word. Um, but if human frailty is such that we will superimpose that frailty onto whatever system we are living in. And so... I think when it comes to the internet, you'll never end misinformation and credulity. Right. I mean, that existed before the internet, so because it, exactly, it's just it's just part of human nature, and it'll it'll take different paths and it'll manifest in different ways. Um, but you'll never and you'll never get rid of it. That's the argument, and and, and 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 the idea that like, I mean, I, I saw some headline that Japan is um, going to use artificial intelligence to evaluate cases of bullying in schools, you know, and things like this. It just seems just, and actually I saw an ad uh, in Turkish uh, for the same, for the same principle that, you know, you can use artificial intelligence in your phone so that your kids can, you know, like give your, uh, give your kid a, a, a phone that can use artificial intelligence in some way to like evaluate whether a person is a threat or not. And it was sort of comparing uh, it, was, it was just a commercial, so it was very short, um, but it sort of used the example of the Little Red Riding Hood and the Big Bad Wolf hmm. uh, to say, like, oh, well, if she had had the cell phone at this time, you know, she would have just been able to ask, uh, you know, Google whether the Big Bad Wolf was was grandma or not. And that just strikes me as a totally black mirror dystopian catastrophe in waiting because um, – because it denies this essential question of, I mean, who, who watches the watchers on the one hand and, um, this, this fallacy that, that humans can build a system that would replace the capacity for humans to do bad things. You know, the idea that a, that a human, that a system built by humans would, would not in any way implicate human frailty when used by humans, right? Because like we built, we built mathematics, um, and that is a way of 
transcending some aspects of human frailty. But but when we do mathematics, we do it as humans and can make mistakes, obviously. Right? So, I've never made a math mistake ever. <laughs> other than trying to count how long this, uh, you know, how many minutes we've we've done this? Oh, I'm completely on top of that. We started at uh, 30 minutes in, so we should be at 90 minutes just now as it wipes over the recording wipes over into the two hour mark. I've been aware <laughs> that we're well over, but um, I felt that we've been having a good conversation, and, and I've just personally been enjoying having it, even if it goes on a little too long this week. You even that we didn't for do the one... last 60 minutes, have you? <laughs> uh, I haven't been taping for the last 90 minutes now. Um, but uh, but yeah, okay, that's probably a good. Uh, points to stop then before David starts bullying me again, and I have to. Um, <laughs> uh, you don't know the stuff he says to me when the camera's off. Uh, it's all very the Japanese. Mean. Google does. Yeah, apparently. Um, but yeah, anyway, I think we had a, a fun conversation there. It doesn't always, um, you know, we wandered afar from what well, our original goal was, but that doesn't mean it was a bad conversation. That's well, but part of I think part of our problem is that we were dealing with a set of well first of all we talked about the like ralph northam stuff so it was just inherently cultural and um not directly related to most of what we had really wanted to talk about in the form of the economic you know economic and culture economic and political communications issues but then part of the issue uh that we found difficult i think to deal with is that in talking about something like the green new deal it's not just economics it's not just politics it's it's cultural it's social it is the intersection of a huge variety of 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 conversations that all need to be had but uh just have a huge amount of complexity and move in very different directions if you take one strand of the of those conversations at a time so um so i don't think we did very well <laughs> in terms of uh offering like a digestible uh sort of conclusion um on the green new deal but i think we stumbled through in our own way um the an example of of why it's so difficult to get a grasp on uh on these issues well i think in part what we did do was we helped to provide a framework for understanding the green new deal even if we didn't deal with it specifically yeah, we talked maybe. about what capitalism Hopefully. versus socialism would be. We talked about how some specific ideas in there are flawed. We talked about you know what moves us from capitalism to socialism. What did Venezuela, what has Venezuela done that would be disastrous? What other you know countries can you look at? It would be interesting if we did an entire episode where we very carefully like wrote up very um, thorough analyses before we started talking and shared them with each other. That doesn't sound like something we'll have enough time to do, but it yeah. would be interesting. You know, that's that's the drawback to this being a fun hobby of ours on Sunday As mornings. To, right. Right. As I mean, if it actual... were, I would love to have a job where I would actually be going around and analyzing and writing about these things. Well, and I was going to say, I should probably apply for one. Income. Woo! Yeah, we gotta, you, you, you got to start somewhere. I mean, that's that's the lesson of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is that, you know, don't she has been remarkably successful in for somebody whose life position was one that people would have all told her you can't do this. She did it. Yeah. And, you know. Whenever she says anything wrong, I just remind I'm just reminded of how incredibly crazy the things the frickin' president says are. Um and it's and you know all of her mistakes seem relatively minor on the political spectrum of crazy mistakes people make, but when 
when old white guys say it, people are just like, oh, well, he misspoke or whatever. When she says something where she gets a number wrong, oh, she's she's off. But I don't know. I, I was predisposed not to like her. Exactly. I was pre- well, I was good. I was predisposed not to like her from the beginning, but I've been I've been falling for how great she is at all the things she's doing. So, you know, that's not nothing. And I mean, there are plenty of dumb Democrats out there, too. But I would note um, as sort of a last thought for this episode that one I'm much less familiar with crazy things Democrats say than crazy things Republicans say, because I read the news sources where you hear all the crazy things Republicans say and not the right wing sources that really want to tear into something crazy Tulsi Gabbard said. Because I'm really not interested in Tulsi Gabbard. Why would I do that? Uh, whereas the right-wing people will read the sources where they have an incentive for Fox News, for example, to say, here's a crazy thing this liberal said. And they don't have an incentive to say, here's an incredibly stupid thing Louis Gohmert said. Right. So, you know, that's that's just one of the ways in which we're living in different worlds. And speaking of living in different worlds, I'm about to live in the world where this recording is done. <laughs> you're still hearing it. So with that, I will wish everybody a good week.